0: Our first reading can be found in the Pew Bibles, and it comes from Luke chapter 6, verses 17 to 19, and then chapter 8, verses 3, 43, beg your pardon, 43 to 46. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And in the crowd were trying to touch him, uh, sorry, and all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out from him and healed all of them. Then chapter 8, verse 43. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years and though she had spent all she had on physicians, no one could cure her. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his clothes and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Then Jesus asked, who touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, master the crowd surround you and press in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me For I noticed that power had gone out from me. Amen. Acts chapter 5 verses 12 to 16 and chapter 19 verses 8 to 12. Now many signs and wonders were done among the people through the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared to join them. But the people held them in high esteem. Yet more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, great numbers of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats in order that Peter's shadow may fall on some of them as he came by. A great number of people would also gather from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all cured. And then from chapter 19, verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke out boldly and argued persuasively about the kingdom of God. When some stubbornly refused to believe and spoke of evil of the way before the congregation he left them, taking the disciples with him, and argued daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that when the handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were brought to the sick, their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Amen.
1: This week's sermon in our anti-lectionary series, as I've called it, uh, in which we're looking at passages and topics that don't normally get addressed from the pulpit here at Bloomsbury, uh, this week's topic takes the form of a question. Do miracles still happen? From my days as a university lecturer setting exams for students, I remember the adage of never setting a question that could be answered with a yes or no. But on this occasion, I've done it. Do miracles still happen? What do you think? Particularly in the light of our Bible readings for this morning. Now, my guess is that if you've got a history with a different kind of church, You may have heard this kind of sermon preached before. And it may be that the reason you're at Bloomsbury is that we usually stay away from this kind of topic. So let's see how we get on this morning. But uh, just a couple of things to share with you to make it a bit more contemporary, perhaps. Uh, I was walking with Liz last night on our way home after having been to the organ concert here yesterday afternoon, which was superb. If you missed it, you should come to the next one. And as we were walking home, we walked along the concourse at uh, Waterloo Station, the bit where there's the long travelator, and there's a new uh, advertising hoarding that I think went up yesterday, Advertising O2, and it looks like this. So we got a picture? There we go. Life is a miracle. I just thought I'd take a photo of that and share it with you this morning. And then uh, I discovered this morning that overnight the BBC have released the results of a survey, which I was fascinated to see. Uh, It says on the BBC website, three in five UK adults say they believe that some form of miracle is possible. So just a few headlines from the BBC website. Uh, Nearly half of those questioned on behalf of BBC local radio, who else, admitted to praying for a miracle at some time. However, when it comes to the miracles of Jesus, nearly half say they do not believe he did miraculous things. Market research firm Comres surveyed 2002 British adults. That's a realistic figure, isn't it? Uh, Anyway, the survey suggested 62% of British adults believe some form of miracle is possible today. Nearly three quarters aged 18 to 24 say they believe some form of miracle is possible, which is more than any other age group. 43% say they have prayed for a miracle. 37% of British adults who attend a religious service at least monthly, which is regular in Bloomsbury terms, say they believe the miracles of Jesus happened word for word as described in the Bible. 37% of churchgoers. Half of this group say they've prayed for a miracle which was answered in the way they hoped. And another 37% of Christians have never prayed for a miracle. It may come down to what you think a miracle is. Anyway, last week was Open Doors Weekend here in London, which, if you don't normally know, if you don't know it, is when various buildings that are normally closed open their doors to members of the public, and some of them put on tours. And Liz and I went to the Royal College of Physicians for a fascinating tour of their Grade uh, 1-listed 1960s building. And in the exhibit, I saw these two gold coins, which we've got here on the photo, and I thought, I know a good sermon illustration when I see one. Does anyone know what these coins are? They're called angels. They're touchpiece coins from 1660 to 1685. They're called angels because, I don't know if you can, you can just about see it, you've got um, the archangel Michael on there, sort of stabbing Satan with a, with a sword or a thing. Um, the interesting thing about these gold angels is that they were used in public healing ceremonies by British monarchs from the 15th century onwards. So the monarch was believed to have authority from God to cure what was then called scrofula, which is a variation of what we would call tuberculosis. King Charles I, you know, he of getting his head cut off fame, apparently cured over 100,000 of his British subjects in public ceremonies just with his royal touch or by placing gold coins around the patient's neck on a ribbon. The practice was finally ended in the 18th century by King George I, who apparently regarded it either as too superstitious or possibly, according to some sources, as too Catholic. Anyway, it raises an interesting question for us which I think is relevant for our readings this morning. And the question is this. Do we believe that 100,000 people were cured of tuberculosis by the King of England placing gold coins around their necks? Now, it may be that you're going to disagree with me on this, but from where I'm standing, as a post-enlightenment, scientifically literate person, it sounds like utter nonsense. Of course it didn't happen. People are not healed of tuberculosis by the touch of the king, nor by touching something that the king has touched. And yet, the origin of the belief that this could and did happen is found directly in our readings for this morning, where people are healed by touching Jesus or or his cloak, or by having the shadow of Peter fall on them, or or that handkerchief or apron of Paul brought to them for them to touch. So what are we to do with the related question of whether we believe that people were healed of their diseases by touching Jesus or his cloak, or by Peter's shadow, or by Paul's handkerchief? And it may be that you want to disagree with me on this, but from where I'm standing, as a post-enlightenment, scientifically literate person, it sounds like utter nonsense. Of course, it didn't happen. There, I've said it from the front. (laughs) I don't think it happened in the first century, I don't think it happened in the 17th century, and I don't think it happens today. Do miracles like this still happen? My answer is no, and I don't think they ever did. Here endeth the sermon for this morning. I said there was a danger in asking questions which invited one-word answers. Except, it seems to me that the question of whether these things happened or still happen is possibly the least interesting part of these stories. Saint Augustine, writing in the fourth century, was very concerned that people kept getting stuck on the wonder aspect of miracles, uh, the, the kind of the against nature bit, and spent so much time speculating on whether these things actually happened that they missed the real point of the story. Augustine said, I'll read this to you, "'Let us ask the miracles themselves what they tell us about Christ, for they have a tongue of their own, if only it can be understood.'" Because Christ is the word of God, all the acts of the word become words to us. The miracle which we admire on the outside also has something inside which must be understood. If we see a piece of beautiful handwriting, we're not satisfied simply to note that the letters are formed evenly, equally and elegantly. We also want to know the meaning that the letters convey. In the same way, a miracle is not like a picture, something merely to look at and admire and to be left at that. It is much more like a piece of writing, which we must learn to read and understand. So says St. Augustine. Actually, when I was discussing this with Dawn, she said actually pictures need to be uh, interpreted and read and understood as well, and it's a good point, but Augustine missed it. So, if we return back to the story of the King of England... Curing scrofula by handing out gold coins. We might find that if we can get over the hurdle of, did these healings really happen? Answer, of course not. There's a more interesting question to be had in the question of why was this story told and circulated? And here we find ourselves in the world of power and politics and the relationship between the state and the church. The reason people of power propagated the belief that the monarch could heal in this way was because of what it said about the divine right of kings. After all, if the Bible told stories about Jesus and Peter and Paul doing these things, then the divinely chosen successor to Christ's power and the authority of the apostles, the king of England, he must be able to do them too. And, of course, keeping the population cowed in awe and loyalty by spreading stories of the amazing divine power of the monarch, particularly over a feared disease that struck children and adults alike. This was a powerful tool for maintaining social order. And, of course, the thing is, some of those people receiving gold coins from the king would have got better Just as some of those on whom Peter's shadow fell or who received a handkerchief from Paul, they would have got better too. The human body has this astonishing capacity to heal itself. I believe that at some point in the next week or two, Dawn will be feeling better from her cold. And sometimes diseases, even serious ones, do resolve and get better of their own accord. And then you get what we now call the placebo effect where the administration of an inert substance generates a genuine physical healing effect as the patient believes that they're being treated. This relationship between the mind and the body is still the subject of exploration in medical science, but it does seem that a positive mindset can sometimes have a healing effect on the body. And by the same token, a person who lives with immense stress and depression for many years may well find that it has a negative effect on their physical health. It's interesting to note that in both our passages from Acts and one of our passages from the Gospels, the narrator specifically mentions people who are both physically sick and those who are tormented by spirits. They had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. A great number of people would also gather from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all cured. Um, When the handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. This link between sickness of the mind and sickness of the body is profound and real. This is why I'm always willing to pray with people about their illnesses. I've sat with people in suffering and sickness and have prayed for them to receive the healing peace of Christ by the power of his spirit, and I have seen them relax, find peace in their pain, and experience a move towards wholeness in both their mind and their body. This is why I'm also willing for us always to pray for one another in our sorrows and our illnesses. Because a world where our attention is turned away from ourselves and towards another in love is a world where Christ's healing is coming into reality in our midst as selfishness is set aside and love is made real amongst us and people are healed in their minds and find wholeness in their bodies. We should not underestimate the power of prayer for healing to bring people to wellness and wholeness. But neither should we overestimate our ability to banish disease in the name of Christ. In all my experience of ministry over nearly 20 years now, some of it in more charismatic environments than this one where prayer for physical healing was common, I have never seen someone incontrovertibly healed of a physical illness. For example... I've never seen someone with a missing limb have it grow back. I've heard plenty of claims made for healings in response to prayer, but they have always seemed to me to be at the tenuous end of medical proof. You see, at one level, I would love to think that I could pray for someone who is terminally ill Or seriously impaired by disease and see them healed before my eyes that'd be amazing but I just don't see it happening and actually if I did I think I'd then have a deeper problem which would be why should it be that some are healed in this way and some are not I've heard it said that whether someone is miraculously healed depends either on the faith of the person offering the prayer for healing or more insidiously on the faith of the person being prayed for. I'm afraid I firmly reject both of these explanations. For my money, the reason people aren't physically healed against the laws of nature is because God doesn't work in that way. The healing that God brings is not a capricious, conditional, supernatural, against nature, miracle. I was in two minds as to whether to tell this story, but I'll I'll tell it anyway. Um, Many years ago now, I was at a minister's conference and it, it was just at that point where Eliza's mum was coming towards the end of her long battle with Alzheimer's. And I went to a seminar on wholeness and healing, and the person who led it was, was great. And she said, you know, uh, clearly we're all going to die of something, and sometimes the prayer for healing is for somebody to become at one with their, with their disease and, and find wholeness in, in their, the ending of their life. And in that context, I shared that what we were praying for for Liz's mum was that she would have a good death. And this chap who was uh, sat opposite me, folded his arms, and he looked over the room and he said, your problem, mate, is you don't have enough faith. I was like, what? He said, if you had seen the things I'd seen and if you had the faith to believe, you would have prayed for her healing and she would have been healed. That's the way Jesus wants it to be. So the uh, facilitator helpfully closed it down at that point and stopped us having a big argument, but I was stewing on this. So I I waited until the evening and we were in the bar at the conference center and I saw this guy. So I went up to him and I said, "Um, I've been thinking about what you said and I found that really very hurtful. So I've got a proposition for you. I'm quite angry with you right now. So I'd like your permission to punch you in the face and break your nose because I'll feel better and you'll be hurt. But then I said, then you can pray for yourself to be healed and because you've got the faith for healing, you'll be healed, so you'll be fine. And then I will see that and I will know that you're right and I'm wrong and I will apologize. So I guess what it boils down to is how strong is your faith? And he put down his pint and ran out of the room. <laughs> so not that strong. I think Geoffrey John, who preached here at Bloomsbury recently for the 223 gathering, is quite helpful here. In his book, The Meaning in the Miracles, he says, cue PowerPoint slide, the stories of healing in the New Testament are, of course, demonstrations of Jesus' healing power and compassion for the individual who is healed. But that is not the main point. Uppermost and far more relevant to us is the miracle's universal significance, the overturning of social and religious barriers, the abolition of taboos, the declaration of God's love and compassion for everyone, expressed in the systematic inclusion of each class of the previously excluded or marginalised. As we consider the meaning of miracles for today, the question that repeatedly poses itself is this. How far has the church seen or wanted to see the implications of this systemic, subversive, highly risky inclusivism on Jesus' part? Or how far has it preferred instead to create and cling to its own taboos? So let's see how this kind of approach might help us understand the anti lectionary readings that we've set for ourselves today and if it can help shed light on how they might speak to us about our Christian discipleship. The first thing I'd like us to notice about the two stories from the book of Acts, of Peter's shadow in the first one and Paul's handkerchiefs in the second one, is that they give us a powerful example of God's healing power breaking out of the boundaries that have been set around it. Chapter 5 again. Now many signs and wonders were done amongst the people through the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of them, rest dead, joined them, but the people held them in high esteem. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, great numbers of both men and women, so that even, they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats in order that Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he came by. So in this reading from chapter 5, those who are cured are people who are so ill that they cannot even walk. They have to be carried out into the streets. The effect in those days of being so ill that you couldn't walk was that in a number of key ways you were excluded from society. Firstly, you couldn't attend religious ceremonies and festivals, and so you were excluded from the worship life of your religion. Secondly, you couldn't work, and so you were a burden on your family. Thirdly, you faced economic exclusion from wider society because you had no money. And fourthly, there was a good chance that you were considered ritually unclean, which would extend your exclusion to all those who shared your house, and you may well find yourself uh, on the streets, homeless, begging for money. In this context, the story of people receiving the touch of God in as random and profligate a manner as simply having the shadow of an apostle fall on them becomes a powerful story about the breaking down of those barriers that exclude the sick and the vulnerable from the presence and love of God. Interestingly, as a slight aside, in the ancient world, a person's shadow was believed to convey something of the essence of the person, whether for good or for evil. So Cicero spoke about how a corrupt person's shadow could affect those it fell over. Stand off, my friends, nor come within my shade, that no pollutions your sound hearts pervade, so foul a stain my body doth partake. You could be corrupted or healed by a shadow. These days we usually work with a social model of disability, where a person's impairment might be physical, but its disabling effect on them is determined by society. So, for example, a person who is a wheelchair user is only disabled from being up here on this platform with me if we as a community have not invested in a ramp that they can use to get here. And we do have one, in case you're wondering. And I think we need to hear a challenge from this passage for us as a community of Christ's people that constantly talks about being intentionally inclusive and welcoming, that we need to take seriously what it means for us to ensure that those who are impaired are not disabled from coming to God in worship. We have questions to ask ourselves about how accessible we are. And I've been interested recently reading the resources of an organisation called Inclusive Church. You can look them up online if you're interested. Uh, They highlight not only disability, but also sexuality, ethnicity, gender, mental health and poverty as factors which can exclude people from the worshipping community. And I think we've got some really interesting and searching questions that we can ask ourselves as a church over the next few months as we, as we begin to think about some of this stuff. But also more widely, I think there's a call here for us to be active in challenging those systems and structures that disable the sick and the vulnerable from participating fully in wider society. So we might, for example, need to take a long, hard look at the inhumane rollout of universal credit as it is forcing people further into the poverty trap that the rhetoric claims to be alleviating. We might want to take a stand on zero-hour contracts, which the Archbishop of Canterbury recently described as the reincarnation of an ancient evil. There are social forces and structures in the world around us which exclude and disable and disempower and demean And the healing love of God in those circumstances is needed as much now as it was when people were carried to Peter for his shadow to fall over them. But moving on, what are we to make of Paul and his handkerchiefs and aprons? I'll just leave the uh, thing up if you want to read it, but I'm not going to read it out now. My great-aunt was a member of an organization called the Panacea Society. This was, if you've not come across the Panacea Society before, a bizarre early 20th century proto-feminist apocalyptic sect based in Bedford. It is true. Amongst their various other activities, they offered a healing ministry, thought by its members to be a panacea, a healing cure for all evils and the cure consisted of drinking ordinary tap water infused with a linen square that had received the prophetess Octavia's divine breath. A kind of healing handkerchief tea bag. These squares of linen were sent free of charge to anyone who requested the healing. And in total, over the course of this ministry, applications were received from 130,000 people across 90 different countries. There is a clear parallel between this far more recent 20th century movement, the Panacea Society still exists, and a friend of mine now works for them, as well as my great aunt having been a member in the early 20th century. Uh, There's a clear link between what they were doing and the healing ministry of Paul's Holy Handkerchiefs. You can see where they got the idea from. Setting aside again the question of whether these healings actually occurred, answer, they didn't, we might notice that there's a contrast as well as a similarity between Paul's healing ministry in chapter 19 and Peter's in chapter 5. Whereas Peter's shadow was falling on those excluded from Jewish society, it was still falling on Jews in Jerusalem. Paul's handkerchiefs were going out to bring the healing peace of Christ to the Gentiles of Ephesus. Paul makes a significant physical move in verse 9. He walks out of the synagogue after three months of teaching there and starts speaking instead in the public lecture hall. He leaves Jewish space and moves into Gentile space. The breaking down of barriers that have begun in Peter's ministry is taken to a whole new level in Paul's as the ethnic barrier between Jew and Gentile is once again challenged within the narrative of the book of Acts. And also, do you notice the distance over which the healing is being offered is increasing? Peter needed to be nearby for his shadow to fall on people. Paul's healing can go far and wide. The sick needed to be carried to Peter, but Paul's ministry of healing goes to the sick wherever they may be. And it seems to me that this is a story that speaks powerfully of the love of God extending over ever greater distances, across ever more challenging boundaries, as the early church embraced the message of universal love extended to all in the name of Christ. There's an interesting further parallel with the only three healing miracles in the Gospels which are done at a distance the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, the centurion's servant, and the Capernaum official's son are all miracles of healing that cross boundaries. Boundaries of gender, boundaries of geography, boundaries of ethnicity, boundaries of social class. I think the picture starts to become clear here, which is that God's wholeness for humans, God's healing for humanity, is not restricted to a select few, It's not defined by geography or gender. It's not constrained by ethnicity. It's not controlled by class. Over the last two weeks, our sermons here at Bloomsbury have challenged us on racism and slavery and on sexuality and hospitality. We need to hear these messages and act on them. And if you missed them, please download the podcast. Both very fine sermons. Neither of them delivered by me, so I can say that. If the biblical stories of miraculous healing are not to be reduced to pointless debates over historicity, and if we are to avoid the damaging and abusive approaches to healing that some Christians fall into when they try and replicate these stories in a contemporary context, we need to open ourselves up to the possibility that the healing love of God is far wider and far more comprehensively offered than specific prayers for specific individual ailments. The healing that is in view here is not, at the end of the day, the healing of the individual. It is the healing of society. It is the healing of the community of faith. And the challenge then, for us, is to seek the transformation of those structures that disable the weak and the vulnerable and marginalize the minority and which seek to legitimate their own power by claiming for themselves a healing power that it is only God's
2: to dispense. Let us pray. This is a prayer of thanks and for mercy. The earth is yours, and the fullness thereof, and we that dwell therein. Lord, we thank you for paying the price of our sins, redeeming and reconciling us. Lord, we thank you as you are always here with us, even though we run away from you. We thank you for the hearts of those that seek to protect the disabled, the marginalized in society, the sick, the poor, the vulnerable, those that are fleeing conflict, and those That are economically disadvantaged. The earth is yours and the fullness thereof, and we that dwell therein. Lord, we pray for mercy where we failed to protect those that are marginalized in society, the poor and those that are abused because of their sexual orientation. Have mercy on us for the politics that provoke anger, the politics that provoke war, and the system of economic injustice that feeds social deprivation and extreme poverty. Lord, we seek mercy. Have mercy on us where we use our tongues to provoke tension among us, far and near. Have mercy on us where differences triumph and where people are excluded because of their ethnicity. Have mercy on us where we force witness to your teachings, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. Lord, you are good. Your love endureth forever. Your faithfulness continues through generations. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.